All right, so we're starting with Liz with quite a shocker about Parler, really. Yes, uh, the Parler users are not happy because um, there were uh, posts about violent uh, insurrection action that got sent to the FBI um, in advance of uh, the January 6th uh, riot at the Capitol building. So uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting um, that now they're calling uh, they're calling for an investigation into big tech collusion and uh all this happened as a big uh, a big uh means to throw parlor under the bus because they were starting to pose a credible threat to twitter and facebook which i sincerely doubt but that's their story and they're sticking to it oh so parlor's trying to be the victim because facebook and google are conspiring against Right, exactly. I could not understand what they were trying to say at all. Okay. It's a big plot because Facebook and Twitter are colluding with the FBI. But well, then, you know, that's kind of what A.B. Klobuchar is saying, although she says, you know, the big monopolies are too powerful and they're crushing all the competition. I mean, there is actually some truth there. But then the, then the users are saying that Parler is colluding with FBI. So yeah, I don't know what they're getting. Yet again... Question. Yet again, their arguments do not make sense to me. Well, yeah, but, but the part where they whine about being a victim, that makes sense because that's the whole sure. right thing now is to whine constantly you're a victim. Sure. So I'm surprised that Parler sent suspicious posts to the FBI. That does seem to entirely contradict their entire reason for existence. I was surprised by that as well, actually. Yeah, you can always tell who is a perpetrator by how loudly they claim they're a victim. I don't know if it's always true, but uh, you pretty much most most uh, people who are you know victimized don't like to say that they're victims, or if they do, they say it in a way that's like I'm very kind of cautious about what I'm saying. Whereas the people who are kind of you know bullies will of course be like I'm the real victim. Ah! Yeah. Well, yeah. and parlor saying like oh don't be mad at us we only send a handful of really violent posts to the fbi because we're a responsible and upstanding company and uh we we're law-abiding citizens and it's like oh okay great but you know i i think it does uh, i think it does um bear repeating that uh despite the fact that they knew this was gonna happen they let it happen anyway well, but they did tell the FBI, which is more than I expected. Right. But this That's is what I meant. The government yeah. let it, knew what was yeah. going to happen and allowed it to go down anyway. Oh, yeah. And I think that's why the probe has been blocked, because there's clearly collusion at high levels of the government and the military. And they're, they're blocking that. Yeah. It's, anyway. Um, all right. Then we got a privacy respecting search engine. So what's this stuff? Urban? So this stuff I found the other day. And interesting at first but practically, eh, maybe not. So what this is, this is a meta search engine. It, you give it a query and it does the query searches at Google, at Bing, at DuckDuckGo, everywhere else and returns you the results. In that way, the, your you know, things like Google won't know who you are because they'll, they'll see, it's basically a search proxy. Yeah. The problem with it is uh, is things like Google and, and Bing and whatnot know of these things. And in a couple searches, they'll start blacklisting where you have to do a CAPTCHA, which this thing can't do. 
Oh, so it's a sheer X. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So it tries to, it, it can do it for a bit and then it doesn't work anymore because it has to get, you, know, you have to do a capture to get through. So it, it does and doesn't work. Uh, there are providers like DigitalOcean who've blacklisted it already. So you can't just pop it up anywhere. So I, I'm reading into it. I've seen that some people will pop up these things in less known cloud providers because uh, they can do it that easier. So it's not a foolproof solution to try to hide from Google and, and whatnot. Uh, seemed like an interesting thing to share. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I know private mode is one attempt to do this and that doesn't work very well. I think you'd have to have Tor and some kind of private mode on your browser if you actually want to hide who you are from people like Google. Yeah. But this is not an old idea. There was a search engine back in the 90s that did something like this. I can't remember what it was called, like web crawler or Inktomi or Lycos or whatever it was, but they're Thought just recycling file. a 20-year-old idea. Yes, yes, they are. And you have to stay on top of it. There's another one called Waste that one of my students showed me in the very first hacking class that would make all these extra network connections and send out all this extra data to try to hide your real data among the chaff. Anyway, um, so Caitlin's got the Apple update. Well, I saw this yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so according to popular science, uh, Apple is putting out a new update for their iOS devices. Uh, apparently, there, there is a cross-site scripting vulnerability, a universal cross-site scripting vulnerability on uh, all current iOS devices. Uh, but other than that, Apple is being very shy about the details. Um, there is some indication that it has been actively um, used. This vulnerability has been actively used. Um, uh, but other than that, we don't know too much about it. Uh, but this is just your reminder to keep your mobile devices updated. Um, and, and the thing that, that I'm a little confused about, I mean, other than the lack of specifics here, is um, they say it's a it's an issue with WebKit specifically, so wouldn't that be all WebKit browsers and operating systems? Wouldn't they all be vulnerable? Why is it just iOS? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but. And also, since when is cross-site scripting so important? I suppose if it's universal, if you could um, steal cookie data from any websites, yeah. that could be pretty bad. Yeah, could be. Well, I mean, like I said, there's no real details. Well, you know, uh, I, as we know, there are some people who will just reverse engineer the patch and figure it out before long. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll find out, I guess. And Alan's got the one where Google shut down a counterterrorism operation. Yeah, this is a big story coming out of the MIT Technology Review of all places. Back in January, Google. Uh, Project Zero announced that they had caught an APT using 11 different zero days in a very elaborate uh, series of attacks. And this story from the MIT Technology Review is saying that uh, this was in fact a counterterrorism operation that Project Zero shut down. And MIT Technology Review is quoting certain unnamed sources as uh, their, their, their sources for this information. Now, uh, of course, what this raises is some very thorny ethical questions about what is the role of a private company when interacting, shall we say, 
with a government that's actively engaged in counterterrorism operations. And of course, the first question is, is this in fact counterterrorism? Are these, these anonymous sources actually telling the truth? But just assuming that it is the truth and that we're talking about the US government or some Five Eyes governments that are involved in counterterrorism operations, would it in fact be for the greater good if Google had simply let that go and not reported it and not patched these exploits. Incidentally, some of these exploits, um, these zero days were uh, on uh, Google Chrome so and Android. So Google itself may have had some uh, uh, commercial interest, shall we say, in patching these vulnerabilities. But nevertheless, um, if the U.S. government or Five Eyes governments were, in fact, actively infiltrating terrorist groups, such as just hypothetically ISIS, patching zero days might not actually be for the greater good. So this is a question for the ethicists and the philosophers in technology. But, um, you know, this is not the first time that this, uh, this, this type of uh, disclosure has happened. And it certainly won't be the last time either, but we're getting into the territory where a company like Google has extraordinary power over shaping world events, not just in uh, commerce and economics, but also in geopolitics and uh, safety. Yes. And another one, I don't know if we've got it on our article list that's similar where they're trying to open the door for the NSA to help inside the country because supposedly part of, I think it was SolarWinds attack, they got away with it because they knew the NSA could not look inside America to see what was happening. So if they had act from an internal server, we're not allowed to look at that data. That's why, you know, I think our, um, the public private barrier and the national security um, from external threats versus internal threats barriers, all these barriers like national borders are totally exploited by cyber criminals. And uh, it's, it's a very thorny issue. I remember this is what got me in trouble years ago. It's what got a fake ethics violation to take away my certification. When I found, I read the anonymous drops in like 2011 and they had like five SQL injections inside the Chinese government. And I contacted people to tell China to fix it. And other people said, you shouldn't have told China to fix it. You should leave it to us so we can hack China. And it's not easy to know what to do. <laughs> Right. It, it reminds me of uh, an independent researcher who found some uh, open buckets, data buckets on Tencent or whatever, that were being used by a contractor to the Chinese government for storing information on a number of ethnic Uyghurs who were being imprisoned or being... Oh, sounds like we lost you. Well, I'll go on to the next one. Maybe Alan will come back. I'm hearing this on all the professional news sources too. <laughs> Everybody's using the same Zoom and stuff and it keeps cutting out. Anyway, um, so this was pretty fun. Um, Twitter, there's been a Twitter war with Amazon. Just childish insults against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and uh, denying things that are obviously true, like Amazon drivers can't find a bathroom. Of course, how could they these days? So they have to pee in a bottle. 
And what I thought was funny is um, the security team at Amazon started a ticket saying, I think the Amazon PR channel has been hacked because it's posting all these crazy things that are not normal. And they said, no, that's Bezos. Bezos apparently got so irritated by these congressional hearings, which were apparently a total circus, that he ordered them all to take off their gloves and start yelling at these people and being mean to them. And this is what happened. So now Amazon is acting like a petulant troll. And, uh, you know, this is, this is another issue of these monopoly companies where you have basically one sort of uh, uh, childish, immature tech bro ruling this huge corporation that is more powerful than most nations and where it, they just get in a bad mood and start doing stupid things. One thing I did think was funny about this story was that um, Bezos is directing his staff to push back harder. So, you know, for some folks, it's literally their job to be internet trolls right now. And I know some people who that would be the perfect, that would be the dream career for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, in a way we've sort of got our own like petty tyrants, like you know Kim Jong Un running these places. Like, uh, and anyway, what's surprising to me is Facebook had been attracting all the real hatred, but Amazon has really been stepping up to try to become the most hated in the world. But this pushback against unionization and just lying to the people trying to unionize and lying about the conditions of their drivers and stuff—they they've really been showing off their nasty side. Yeah, Facebook, Google, and uh, Facebook, Google, and Amazon are like in a race to the bottom right now. Well, Sundar Pichai at Google seems pretty polite and dignified, and Google seems to be uh, acting professional by comparison. They're, they're not doing too good on the uh, ethics and AI and uh, underrepresented oh. minorities fronts right now. Oh yeah, they keep firing people in charge of ethics for like complaining about the ethics. Yeah, uh, what could go wrong? You know, they all seem to just be ruled by petty tyrants that, that don't make good decisions. That's why I've just heard um, uh, Amy Klobuchar saying, we're going to break them all up. We've had it with this stuff. Anyway, uh, all right. So back to Liz, you got, uh, oh, the AI for arguing with humans. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just what we needed um, a in uh, an, an, uh, AI that was in uh, entirely developed uh, by IBM just for uh, the purpose of debating humans. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, there is a, their project is called Debater, Project Debater, and it's an autonomous debating system that they've been working on for a while so that they can uh, have this eye uh, mount meaningful arguments against uh, humans. So pretty soon we're going to be able to automate the legal system, right? For sure. <laughs> this reminds me of one of the uh, folks where you have a presidential candidate that is completely an AI with a fake face and makes up his own speeches and stuff. Um, I thought it was interesting because they, uh, they uh, have a process called argument mining where the AI will... Uh, parse a whole bunch of um, desperate info and then and try to link together uh, whatever relevant points it's fine to uh, make the um, to mount its argument in the debate. Which is pretty much what people do and like assistance in campaigns do. You yeah. Know, get us some They've, talking points on this topic. 
they fed it 400 million news articles uh, so it can debate like around 100 topics that's based on the info parsed from the news articles, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was famous for this. He had shoeboxes full of articles he'd cut out of the newspaper, which was his horse <laughs> for all of his stuff. So he would find an article somewhere that said that like cars actually produce or trees actually produce the smog. It's not the cars. And he would have wow. some paper clipping from somewhere to back this stuff up. That's he was, awesome. He was like the original conspiracy theory, fake news, the low tech version, you know. Anyway, uh, so then we got uh, the Second Amendment audit of workstation. Independent audit of workstation. Not yeah, second. second independent audit of secure job workstation was completed by Trail of Bits. Uh, and they said it's pretty good. They found a, a couple of things. Uh, one high, six medium, seven low, 12 informational findings. There's a full PDF that anybody can read. So what is secure job workstation? It looks like it's a, it comes from CubeOS. Yeah, it relies on CubeOS and Zen to ensure isolation. So the purpose of it is for journalists to use it to receive anonymous submissions, which might contain malware, I guess. That, and, and I think you could also use this to be anonymous or like try to isolate, you know, like your browsing sessions and whatnot. Is this what the New York Times uses? Because I know they opened a special way to like leak to them. I don't know if they use it, but I kind of want to lean towards yes. Yeah, now, I remember they, there's a big deal. New York Times, the Washington Post, and a lot of other people um, opened a special way for you to submit things to them that would hopefully preserve your privacy because the original things like WikiLeaks and The Intercept totally failed and leaked out their sources and got those people imprisoned. Yeah. Uh, so you really be... need to be more careful with what your whistleblowers are saying to you. Yeah, well, it's definitely good to check the security. And Caitlin's got uh, homeworking infractions. I do. Uh, Peter Walker over at The Guardian has an article about call center staff being monitored via their webcams. So you can imagine working from home and having a webcam pointed at you all day long where you're having someone watch and record you all the time. And I can only imagine how nerve wracking that must feel. Um, on, the, on the flip side, uh, the company does point out that these workers, um, these, the people who work on the telephone lines, are handling sensitive customer data. Um, and of course, you do need to monitor the call for customer service you know, <laughs> you know, to make sure that you know, everything is, is you know, audited and, and everything's okay. Um, and so there's, this, there's a question of how do you, how do you maintain worker comfort uh, while maintaining, you know, high standards of, uh, of handling personal information. And I don't know what the answer is, um, but certainly, you know, pointing a web camera at an employee, uh, you know, uh, during the work hours all the time is not good for morale. It reminds me of like the police body cams that they keep turning off with the same complaint, basically. You know, and, but the thing is with the police body cams, I've found that it really protects quote unquote, good cops. Um, but of course the bad cops for whatever reason, they always turn it off. Uh, 
And it's not pointed at them. That's the thing about the police cams. Yeah. It's not pointed at the officers themselves and what they do. If they want to pick their nose, it's not going on camera, right? Yeah. It's pointed, you know, sort of outward at the subject so they can see what's going on um, during the review, but it's not pointed at the cops. I think it would be a little different for the cops if the camera was pointed back at them. Well, I knew a guy that worked in for San Francisco City um, working on like road repair and sewer repair. And he said they announced about six years ago, they're putting GPS on all the trucks so we know where they are. So he said, you guys got to stop goofing off on the job. And then like the next month, they all continued to goof off on the job. They would just drive the city truck to like a bar and spend all day in there drinking and take it home and, and do all this stuff that they weren't supposed to be doing, just ignoring it. That's true too. I mean, you, you can totally ignore the, the cameras and they don't necessarily do anything. And we need studies to see if these actually do improve uh, customer, you know, data sensitivity protection. Yeah, I know a common, I know someone who actually has to go to Zoom meeting and leave the camera on all the time for like hours at a time. And they notice if you try to turn it off, which I seems to me really, really harsh. But anyway. Mm -hmm. um, all right. And so Alan's got, oh, selling Discord. Yeah. Boy, a lot of people love Discord. Yes. And a lot of people do not love Discord suitors. Uh, there have been a lot of rumors in tech finance circles that Discord, the number one platform for, I don't know, idle chatter while gaming. Some people object to that characterization. And every conference now, everything. Yes. <laughs> for that matter, it's very popular in security circles, true. Anyway, uh, people are starting in people in the tech finance world are starting to see that possibly uh, Discord poses a threat to the more incumbent traditional social media platforms. And so there's now chatter about Discord being bought and not for a little amount either. 10 billion seems to be the starting point and uh, Microsoft is the top potential suitor. But there's also talk that there might be a bidding war and that the ultimate price may go up to 20 billion or beyond. This is not the first time that Discord has been the subject of uh, purchase buyout speculation. It, there was talks about it a couple of years ago. So Discord may decide to continue going alone, but also do not be surprised if Microsoft buys Discord and promptly wrecks it and it becomes unusable in just a few years time. That's what they usually do, like Skype. Yes, exactly like Skype. Yeah. I remember Yahoo used to buy them and just never do anything and just let them die. Yes, <laughs> right. Forget that they even had the property and let it die. Yes, I mean, not even as part of an evil plan, just incompetence. Yes. Yeah, anyway, uh, we'll see what comes of that. Boy, people be sorry. If that happens. Anyway, I was interested. Of course, the uh, recent mass shootings have got people interested in this stuff. And I mentioned it last time, I didn't realize 100 people die a day in America from shootings. So I looked up some, uh, some statistics. And uh, 2020 was the most deadly gun violence year in decades. They've shown it going up. Uh, there's 20 to 25,000 suicides per year. I've always known that is the number one use of guns. That's why I thought if you were like a gun control advocate and you hate people with guns, the worst thing you could do to them is let them have guns because they will kill themselves. That is the primary use of guns. But the secondary use has risen to where 19,000 people were shot in 2020 or killed and 39,000 shot. And so we should watch it going up and up. 
And I saw a number that said we now have like half a million guns in America, like more than one per person. And so it's, uh, it's amazing to just see this incredible, and it's such a huge part of American culture. I mean, I don't think you can really do much of anything about it. It's like alcohol and cigarettes. It's like integrated with our culture, even though you can prove that they're not good. It's like a huge part of America just will not let you take their gun. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. I was gonna say one, one of my longstanding positions has been, I, I've, I'm for repealing the second amendment, even though I think people should have the right to own guns or at least, you know, it, no one should take that ability away from them to own guns. I just feel like the big problem we have is, is gun culture, where it's ingrained in American psyche that if you are an American, you own a gun. And I don't think that needs to be a prerequisite to be an American. That's just me, though. I I'd be happy to just get rid of guns entirely, except for like police and stuff and military, but that would make us like Europe, which would also suit me just fine. So I guess I'm not a proper patriotic American, whatever this great rugged thing where you have a gun and it makes you a man. I just don't feel that way. There are lots of police forces uh, in Europe in, in particular that do not use guns. I mean, yeah. the idea that the police need guns is a very American idea. Yeah, I remember I, I read this article. I think it was it was the UK or Ireland where they had a crazed mass stabber that like stabbed five people and none of them died because they don't have guns. I said, you know, that seems a lot better to me. Yeah, and yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I guess I mean, no one died. <laughs> when you don't have guns, you have a whole lot less people getting killed. <laughs> anyway, but um, the other thing which I also thought, I looked in the statistics, which um, I had heard, and I here's the real numbers, is that suicide is very racially connected. It's very sex linked. And I see an interesting figure here for age-related suicide rates. And I always heard that white men kill themselves a lot, but even more Asian men kill themselves. So out of 100,000 people, 11 are Asian men, eight is white men, and black men is only three. Always surprised me, and women much less. So, um, it, but it, it's a very strong cultural issue. And this is the thing, I remember I heard this like 10 years ago, and I wondered, black men don't kill themselves as often as white men, which is, I wonder what that, what causes that. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, I find these interesting numbers and it makes, it seems to me like these are things you should know before you start making policies, trying to figure out what to do. So, anyway. so I'm, I'm the last person alive to be, uh, you know, talking about, you know, minority, um, you know, cultures and issues and stuff like that. Um, but I will say I, I have met um, a lot of people from, uh, you know, minority backgrounds who are taught very early on to be very resilient. Um, because of, of the challenges that, that they face. And, and that makes them very strong. Um, and I would assume that also makes them less prone to, you know, giving up and committing suicide. This is a true statement. I also think there's some kind of pressure to maintain some superiority. Um, I think this is, I know in like uh, Japan, if you have like a failure at school or business, a lot of them kill themselves because it is so, so important not to be a failure and to not to bring disgrace on your family or something. And so I think, I don't really, there's some kind of cultural issue where, where death before dishonor is a real cultural thing, I think. Absolutely, there are cultural pressures as well. I mean, suicide's not just one thing. It's not, there's, you know, mental health issues, social pressures, uh, stuff yeah. like that. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, we're not really qualified to really discuss the, the, the details of, of why people, 
people do this. By the way, um, we should probably put a content warning uh, on the video before putting it out. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I'd like to say about gun culture is that gun ownership in America has gone down significantly since the 1950s. Uh, I believe in the 50s, uh, roughly half of all American households had a firearm. Now it's down to like 20%. However, the number of of guns that are being that are owned has gone up significantly because the approximately 20% of American households that do have firearms now have many firearms. So the number of people actually with firearms has gone down significantly, but the, the ones that uh, do own firearms are significantly more invested into not just the ownership of guns, but into the gun culture apparently. Yeah, well, I think that probably reflects moving from rural to city. Because I mean, in the country, everybody had guns. My family did. Because you go out hunting, you have animals attacking your chickens and stuff. <laughs> They're common farm implements. Right? I think in the city, most people don't need one. Yeah, well, then why do people need a collection of a dozen guns? Well, that's a, that seems to be pretty this American culture where people just like having a pile of them. Yeah, there have been so many memes about uh, Lauren Boebert and her collection yeah. of guns on the shelves behind her. I, I'm, I'm a lot of gun enthusiasts I know are like that. They just have a huge collection like other people might have a collection of cars or motorcycles or something. Yeah, and the thing is, I really actually think it's good to encourage people who really like guns, you know, to, to explore that and, and have their collection. But like I said, the thing is, we just want to, I really think we should disconnect the idea of Americanism and masculinity from, from gun ownership. Like you don't have to prove you're an American by owning a bunch of guns. Agreed. Yeah, well, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And then we got Elizabeth with forging Vax cards. Yes, I saw a video about this last week where some... Somebody had doxxed a uh, nurse at a children's hospital who was bragging about um, uh, faking, um, faking uh, getting vaccinated for work because she didn't want to get vaccinated. And apparently this is a thing. People are faking their vaccination cards and receipts. One person in the story had stolen blank uh, vac vaccination cards from her pharmacy for herself and her husband and um, so that they could pass themselves off as having been vaccinated without getting it. Um, and then they the, these people also, surprisingly enough, are not real good about OPSEC and make it really easy to figure out who they are. Um, like this person, that the person who had stolen the cards from her pharmacy had uh, put a, another video up where she had was like mailing something out with a visible return address on it. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty insane. And, and I think there's going to be a whole lot more of this because as you saw, there's not a real, we don't have a real good system in place yet to um, be able to prove that you've had it or not had it as the case may be. I know New York City just put out their vaccine passport app and everyone else making it. And I, I downloaded it and didn't find any obvious vulnerabilities. But the thing that strikes me is when they gave me the shot, I did get a vax card. You did give you something. So well, this doesn't even count. It doesn't look like anything serious at all. And it only records and doesn't even record when you got the shot, especially for the second shot. That's and, crazy. And I don't think they knew who I was. 
I mean, they did take our driver's licenses, but I don't know if they really took photographs of them. I don't really know if there's any database anywhere that really knows whether I got a shot. So yeah, and I was I was thinking about this in relation to um, vaccine passports because those are being yeah. uh, implemented um, in a few international countries already, and I'm like, how are we gonna? How is this gonna work? And how are people not gonna be able to mess with the system? Because yeah, the Biden administration is now officially rolling it out for use in America, but I think they mm -hmm. missed the boat. I think the data is already lost. Yeah. And easy to tamper with. That's the other thing, you know. It was one of the things that's concerning to me is that I remember reading uh, an earlier story about this, and also just hearing it from someone who works in healthcare that there are a lot of nurses that don't want to get the shot, which is pretty mind-boggling to me because I think if you were um, at that level of risk and exposure, you'd want to be first in line to get it. But there are a bunch that don't want to get it. And it's pretty scary when you consider that there's going to be uh, some population of healthcare workers who don't have it and lied about it successfully. Uh, yeah. So you go to the you go to the hospital uh, for a, for a broken arm and you could end up dying from COVID because Nurse Becky um, is a, a QAnon uh, loyalist and didn't get her shot. Yes. I think there's going to be a ton of that, especially if you start having to prove you've been vaccinated to go to school or get on an airplane or anything. There's yes. going to be a bunch of people faking it. Yes. Yeah. And exactly. so, so in the chat, I just posted a link to the actual PDF that you can download uh, that contains the COVID-19 vaccination record card. You can just fill yeah, that yourself. Have fun. Oh, so you don't even need to steal it from your workplace. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, why even go through the whole effort of stealing it from the... <laughs> from, uh, uh, wow. from, from yeah, from the pharmacy. When you can, I here's the link right here. It's a PDF. It's a from public. the government, no less. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, on a government site, the official thing. Just fill out yourself. Have fun. Ne.gov. Nebraska. Nebraska. He just published the blank. <laughs> yeah. Good. Five job. seconds of OSINT. You can go ahead and download it. Have fun. That's the card they gave me. And that's when someone said, they didn't give you anything. I said, no, they didn't give me anything. They gave me like a little piece of card, like the way your dentist says to remind you of your appointment. They didn't like give me anything that proves I got the vaccine. Not even remotely official looking. <laughs> yeah, isn't that incredible? So I, I'm wondering, I'm really wondering how this is going to work with the passports and the, yeah. the, the, you know, with the situations where it is required. Well, I tell you, the one in New York City, the comments, I saw like three comments on the app, and one said, this thing is great, and the next two comments said, it doesn't work. For, I'm on the list. My wife got the vaccine at the same time, and hers says she didn't get it. The database is all screwed up. This thing doesn't work. So I think this whole vaccine passport thing is going to be a disaster. On the other side, I think they're going to be people that already got it and need to prove it so they can go to school or whatever and won't be able to prove it because of the stuff screwed up. And well, I don't know, you know, what's marijuana. I mean, if you've got like 30% of Americans that refuse to get the vaccine anyway, then you just have to forget about your vaccine passport. There's no way you can possibly require it for anything because there's going to be a ton of people that simply won't do it. Yeah. Anyway, then this one here, Irvin Scott, I really am amazed by this. They want to force people to disclose breaches. I thought we already had to disclose breaches. 
I guess not one to the government. Because that's what this is. It's because it, of solar winds, right? Right, because of solar winds. Because, the yeah, like they're saying, the federal government needs to be able to investigate immediate threats to the service it provides to the American people early and quickly. The one part I thought made some sense is now you have to give a software bill of materials to the government so they know what's in the product they're buying. Um, I guess, but I mean, SolarWinds didn't even know they'd been hacked. It was FireEye that figured it out. Right. That's why I can see how government administrators would like to say, wait a minute, you have to tell us when you get hacked, but it's not that simple. Right, it's not that simple because it doesn't it doesn't work that that linearly. Um, but yes, they they want the government wants to get those those notices. Yeah, well, I understand the issue they're trying to deal with is uh, supply chain security, which is a huge issue. But I'm not sure that an executive order requiring more breach notifications is actually hitting the important point. And I guess that's why they're still considering it. They haven't put it out yet. Yeah, it's supposed to come out some point this week. Yeah, it's one of those things that we're gonna we're gonna have to wait and see the actual document and and then be able to to say that this is a good idea or a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, Caitlin has evidence that philanthropy is self-serving. Right. Um, so there's a the Academic Times um, published this article going over. Uh, Elite, uh, elite philanthropy. Um, they show um, a group of UK researchers reviewed 263 uh, journal articles, books and studies, looking at philanthropy by large donors like Bill Gates and um, Jeff Bezos and, and um, what's, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, looking at if that, this stuff actually helps society or not. Um, and the answer is mm, a little bit, but it's mostly self-serving. Um, when you look at the, the numbers uh, of a lot of these tech people that have made billions of dollars, um, it, it's, it's, it's obscene. Um, numbers these bigs kind of get lost in our head because there's not, in our heads, there's not a big difference between like a million and a billion. In reality, there's a huge difference. Uh, but I know like Jeff Bezos is worth like $200 billion. And if you had a job that paid like, I don't know, like a thousand dollars an hour, which is a lot of money and, and you worked, you know, every day, uh, you know, uh, maybe take weekends off. I mean, you would, you would be working for like over 70,000 years, I would say you know, to make as much money as Jeff Bezos has right now. I mean, it is ridiculously large sums of money that these people amass. And what this philosophy does, not in philosophy, sorry, this philanthropy does primarily is uh, take that scrutiny, scrutiny away from them. And that's the biggest gain that they get from doing this. It is almost always uh, self-serving to, uh, to that extent. Public relations. It's, yeah, it's essentially a PR stunt, uh, essentially. Uh, this started with uh, the original Rockefeller, John D. He, he, everybody hated him because he ran like the coal mines or something that killed people. And so he started giving away dimes on the advice of like his PR person. And he became famous as the man that would give you a dime. Right. And um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. The, so yeah, you would, you would hope that the philanthropy, especially like the Bill and Gates Melinda Foundation, where they do a lot of, of, you know, public service in terms of, you know, public health, you, you would hope that they're, they're doing a lot of good in the world at least, but apparently no. I mean, most of the good is to them. 
Well, actually, I think Bill and Melinda Gates would be an exception because he's no longer involved with the company. I mean, I don't see how he has any brand he has to whitewash anymore. Well, what he's doing, according to researchers, is taking pressure away from fellow billionaires who have you know, lots of money, who would otherwise face a lot of scrutiny. Oh, sure. And he's part of that class. He's part of that group. Um, I suppose indirectly, it affects issues like the wealth tax and stuff. Like, do we all hate billionaires so much that we're going to like tax them? Well, maybe not if they did a good thing that hit the headlines. Right, exactly. If, if, if they make themselves look like they're, they're good and, and they're masses of wealth, they're helping society, you know, it's less likely that we're going to go after them and, and try to redistribute their wealth. Um, however, you know, these, these efforts really are mostly self-serving. It certainly is amazing now that we no longer tax rich companies or rich people. Um, yeah, uh, Zoom. This this year, of course, has made it huge. They made, you know, they're, they're they're raking in cash left and right, and they paid zero taxes. Yep, that seems to be the case for the Amazon too. With everybody, there's just big, big loopholes, so you don't have to pay any taxes. So, how can we possibly fund anything? And with rich people, the IRS has just come out right out and said it. We go after uh, poor and middle income people, not rich people, uh, for ta any kind of, uh, taxes that we can get out of them because we know that they don't have the resources to fight us. Whereas the ultra rich, um, can get out of it every time. So we don't even bother. Yeah. Well, this is the kind of corruption that leads eventually to some kind of readjustment. So we'll see. I mean, the problem is the people who are doing the readjustment are either the people who are in need of the readjustment or fund the people who would do that. So there's, there's a conflict of interest there. Well, yeah, but there's a level of income inequality where your society has some kind of revolution or something. And I think we're, we're near it. Anyway, Alan's got an all electric backhoe. Yes, in the world of construction equipment. Uh, Case Construction Equipment has released an all-electric backhoe, no diesel anywhere. It is apparently just as powerful as a conventional diesel-powered backhoe. Um, it has a very large battery with an eight-hour duty cycle, and you can run that as hard as you want, but then you have to charge it, and it requires uh, 220 volts. So if you're out in the field somewhere well away from any hookups, then you're kind of out of luck. But if you're closer to civilization, I, they claim that this backhoe has considerably lower maintenance costs and operation costs. So that's what I was thinking. Maybe yeah. this is the future. Oh this yeah, and also future quiet. You can uh, run it in town. Uh, what's that? Also quiet, so you can run it in town without having to. Right. Yes. Yes, extremely quiet, apparently, extremely yeah. quiet. And so there are definitely some benefits to this technology. I mean, it, it really does sound like a big improvement over diesel technology. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's rather expensive and they've only got a couple of, of uh, machines that they've produced and are trialing at this point. But they're also not the first. I, I, I guess I'm late to the news. Cat and Bobcat have already come out with uh, vehicles, electric uh, electric um, equipment previously. So this may well be a trend in construction equipment, not just in passenger vehicles. Yeah, well, speaking of the, the uh, charity of billionaires, this was the whole thing about Tesla. He showed you can really make great electric vehicles, which before that, people didn't really believe that. 
Yeah. All right, and I got the last one here, which I was very interested to read about. I heard vaguely years ago that the moon was made out of the same stuff as the earth and was considered to have been broken out of the earth by some kind of impact, but they've gone into this in much greater detail that when it, in the very earliest formation of the earth, when it was a protoplanet, just a, a half formed blob of gas and rock and stuff, it got hit by another protoplanet, which they've given a name, Thea. And now they think that two big blocks of Thea sunk into the core of the earth. There are two different kinds of rock puddles, molten in the earth that sit there of a different density than the rest. And part of the earth was knocked up to become the moon. And anyway, I was very interested to hear this. When I was a kid, there was this guy named Velikovsky that had this model of how the solar system was formed like a game of pool, like Mars hit Jupiter and knocked off something and that became Neptune and that flew down here and hit Venus. And it was just ridiculous and stupid. And yet some part of this is true that these collisions formed us. And you know, the earth and the moon is a very strange thing. Such a large moon and exactly the same size as to blot out the sun. Uh, there's certainly a lot about that that seems to beg more explanation. So I thought this was very interesting. And I wonder if it's related to the mass cons. You might know something about this, Caitlin. You know, there actually are high mass parts of the earth that cause satellites to deflect in their orbit. There are. Um, yeah, no, I was gonna say the earth moon system is, is very unique. Um, almost always moons around a planet are much smaller than the planet themselves. If you look at the moons of, of Mars, for example, like you have yeah. Phobos and Deimos, which are just like tiny little asteroids. They look like little dots in the sky. Uh, the Earth-Moon system is actually a dual planetary system, uh, technically. Uh, we still call it the moon. You know, we don't say it's two planets or whatever, but the, but the moon is roughly the size of Mercury. It's just much less dense, as you said, Sam, uh, because the moon was mostly made up of crustal material. Um, it doesn't have the, the big iron core center that like the Earth has or that a lot of other planets have that make it, you know, so it's much less dense. So you have a lot less gravity. And so the baryonic center, uh, the, the center between the Earth and the moon is still within Earth. So we still call it the, the moon, the moon, even though, like I said, it's a, it's a dual planetary system, which is very rare. And it's probably one of the reasons we don't see a lot of signs of life in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Milky Way at the very least, is because where we are, we just happen to be on this extremely rare type of planet. Uh, and not, I'm not just talking about, you know, this being in the Goldilocks zone like everyone else talks about, but we also have this like dual planetary system um, with, with the moon keeping the, the Earth's axis fairly stable. Um, and it's, you know, it's, and if, if the Earth did not have the moon, we would, our temperature would wobble around so much as, as the axis would tilt around, uh, that would make, you know, sustaining um, intelligent life, you know, almost impossible uh, because we would go from, you know, a snowball earth to like a superheated earth to a, you know, snowball earth again as, as the earth sort of tilts and tumbles around the, the solar system. So it's just a very, very interesting setup uh, that we have here. It is, and it helps explain, you know, the other mystery I've worried about my whole life, the Hoyle equation, there ought to be just tons of other life forms out there and apparently there aren't. So there's something very special about this place, like a tide pool that makes it possible to evolve intelligent life that does not happen often. Yeah, and I've, I've always suspected the moon. Um, <laughs> the moon is a major yeah. player in that because like I, like I said, it is very rare, uh, very unique and does, does provide stability for life to develop over billions of years. And Wait a minute, we, I thought the, the moon was made of cheese. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that we appear when you can see lunar and solar eclipses seems like that cannot be an accident. 
and the true I, I mean no, it, it is kind of I mean the, the thing is is that it's so a lot it's often described as so so for people at home that don't understand what, what Sam is talking about um, the, if the moon crosses in front of the sun it basically blots out the sun completely because it is the the radius of the moon uh, and is uh, a ratio to, is the exact sort of ratio to the distance to the sun essentially is the same kind of size. size in the sky right so so they yeah they take up this about the same size however that's way oversimplifying because the earth the the moon's orbit kind of wobbles a bit in and out so sometimes it's a little bit bigger than the sun sometimes it's a little bit smaller than the sun um, and it'll keep doing that, and it's going to keep doing that for, for a long time. The, the moon is actually slowly drifting away from Earth yes. over, over time. Um, and so as far as I, and so, yeah, so previously, uh, the moon would have always been larger than the sun. And over the course of billions of years, it's going to grow to be smaller than the sun. We just, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's coincidence that right now it's sort of in that, you know, midpoint. Well, that's, that's an interesting issue. Anyway. I was quite interested to learn more about the formation of the moon. And uh, all right. Well, anyway, I guess that's it. Uh, um, so before we go, yeah. Uh, one thing I actually learned re recently is that the moon is actually a good place to find uranium deposits. Oh, I didn't I was, know that. Yeah, I did not know that either. Um, and, stuff, yeah. yeah and, and, and one of the things you can actually do is because all the uranium in the solar system had been deposited basically at the same time, um, when, when the solar system formed, uh, you can look at the, the ratio of the uranium-235 to 238 on every single like asteroid and every single moon um, and compare it to like what we have on Earth. And it's, it's all the same ratio. Oh, well, good. Yeah, that's one of the more evidence that it came from the Earth. Well, well, no, I mean, it's the same throughout the entire solar system. So even oh. on Mars, you have the same ratio of uranium-238 to 235. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. The only time you don't is when there's a, uh, a nuclear uh, reactor. And there actually have been a few um, natural nuclear reactors on Earth uh, that have just formed naturally, where uranium got together in, in the right clumps in the right situation that it sustained a, a fission reaction. Uh, so you do get a, a, that's the only time you see any sort of variance in, the, in, in, in anything. But you, but you can totally pick up moon rocks and look at the uranium in there. And, hmm. Yep. That's where Marvin the Martian gets his uranium. Yeah. <laughs> Same place we would. Yeah. Yep. So. All right. So we'll be back on Friday. Farewell. Hi, I'm Sam Baum, a security educator, and this is InfoSec Decoded, a twice-weekly podcast of security news and commentary. Our stories may be outrageous, important, or absurd, but always entertaining. I'm joined by Elizabeth Biddlecombe, consultant and educator, Caitlin Handelman, security engineer, Irvin Lemus, consultant and trainer, and Alan Wennerson, also a college instructor.